supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. So once again, we that's our brand new you know, video that we just had made for us. So but at this time, we are going to be talking about how the pyramids were actually constructed. So not 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 some of these, you know, crazy ones where we just had some some guy slap uh, throw a block on the back on his back and walk up a ramp, and stick it you know, stick them together like Legos. That's Steve Myers. How are you, sir? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm very good. Uh, thank you for uh, having me on your show. I'm honored. Oh, well, hey, it's, it's amazing that you would be honored to be on our show. I mean, hey, we, we take that as like, <laughs> yeah, we, that's, that's just awesome to us. But yeah, so there's a, the lost technology of the Great Pyramid, how the Great Pyramid was built. Um, looking into this, I have to say your theory was one that I really wasn't familiar with prior to this. And I I don't want to steal any thunder. I want to let you get into this for anybody that hasn't, because most people, they've all heard the stories of Moses and the slaves and everybody's, you know, you've seen the movie, you know, with Charlton Heston, whips are out there and everybody's with ropes and they're lugging these blocks. And your, your book says that didn't happen. Not with the Great Pyramid, no. Uh, I mean, that's a good story. You know, and it's it's a it's a wonderful story to come up with, with strong back knuckle draggers that drug seventy ton payloads up a ramp, a dirt ramp that would have had to have been larger than the Great Pyramid itself. I mean, that's a story, but that's that is also called a hypothesis, and you can you can um, uh, lend credence to that hypothesis with a demonstration. And that, that story is propagated by Egyptologists, but they, uh, Egyptology doesn't engage in the scientific method and provide a demonstration to validate their story. They've never moved a 70-ton payload one inch. They've never made precision stone cutting in the manner they say it was done and a whole host of other things they've never done. So they just tell, they're just storytellers. But there are other explanations of the same direct physical evidence that the Great Pyramid provides. And for anybody that wants to look, you just go, you can go to Amazon right now and you can get, you can have this sent to you right now so you can read along as we talk about it with the Kindle version. So you can get those or you can have the book sent to you through there or you can go to his site right here, thepump.org and this talks about the research that he's done, a little bit more details on there so you can go go check out both of those sides we you know we really encourage you know people to to go out there buy the books and 
go along with this because this one, like you said, the the thing that's always been the craziest part for me too is when everybody talks about the construction. Is I'm I'm of the belief that the Egyptians that we know we see that they're talking about, I think that they were doing something to something that was already there. I don't know myself if I personally believe believe that they constructed the physical Great Pyramid, the Sphinx, that these were a prior civilization that was there and they just kind of worked with what there was there, like a blank cap, you know, they would be a blank canvas. Oh yes. A lot, a lot of people contend that uh, a lot of alternative researchers, it's like a, like a, what they call a, a hermit crab that'll go find a shell that it, that it can fit into and uh, go into that shell. And it's uh, a lot of people think the uh, Egyptologists explanation of ancient Egypt is sort of like that, that a lot of those magnificent out-of-place um, artifacts like the Great Pyramid were probably built by a pre-existing civilization than the agrarian civilization uh, described by Egyptologists. So I agree with that. I agree with that fully. That's a definite possibility because Egyptology can't show how even components of the Great Pyramid were made or moved with the technology they seem to have. Yeah, that that's the thing. It's just it's because we were talking a little bit, you know, earlier today, you know, with us, and it's about the stone. It's like if they can, if it was back when they say it was, we should be able to tell how they perfectly cut these blocks that they are seamlessly stacked together. And this, I'm sorry, when you're going back there and you see all the images of these tools and stuff, <laughs> you're not hammering, chiseling these giant seventy-ton blocks into perfect squares that lock into place. And not only that, you know, hand move, moving these stones, like I said, with ropes and, you know, as the guy, taskmaster's whipping and moving those and putting them in place. And that's where your theory, and if you want to get into that, I mean, this is like perfect segue. I actually really like your theory on, because this makes sense, because I, I liken it to the Panama Canal. Well, I appreciate that. Um, a 70-ton payload is the weight of a locomotive engine. And uh, all Egyptology has to do is take the wheels off a locomotive engine, you know, mm -hmm. on a train, take the wheels off the engine and drag it up a dirt road, and all of us alternative researchers will go away because they have demonstrated, in effect, their uh, ideas. But they won't do that. They won't engage in the scientific method for two reasons. One reason is because they're wrong. And the second reason is because their explanation is an impossibility. Just like nobody demonstrates that uh, cows jump over the moon, even though you can read about it and everything else. There's no, <laughs> there's no demonstration of that. So nobody <laughs> believes it. But for some reason, Egyptology can get away with that. And, but that science is in crisis. But yes... The, the uh, real people in the real world wanted to move things that weighed thousands of tons, like a battleship, and they really had to do it. They had to actually do it in the real world, so they built the Panama Canal. My dad was on the uh, West Virginia battleship during World War II. That oh, battleship wow. could be lifted 
and moved in the Panama Canal. And we think that water locks were an integral aspect of moving stones from the Nile River all the way up to the building site and that the stones were moved effortlessly. The stones are beyond the scale of human back muscles to move in any type of efficient manner. It can't be done. So they used water locks and efficiently and quickly move stones all the way up to the building site. So it's uh, it's a fascinating technology. Yeah, cause it's that's that's just the thing. It's just, you know when you look at it, because just just the amount you know whether they want to say it was you know pulley systems, you know levers, you know they had pre you know they had these crane type things. I mean, you start looking at these things. There once again, you're not answering the question of. How did a guy with a with a simple bronze age type tool carve a seventy ton block of stone? Not only just car carve it out of the face, then they supposedly tra it traveled that great distance for them to then lift it up and stack it. I'm like, you just the logistics of this is insane. I go, I don't know how they would do it. And then when you came along with your theory, which I really liked. Well, now we're like, now we just have to explain. How, now we just have to figure out one, how did they carve it? And how did they get it into whatever they used, whether it was the type of barge type thing, to then float it to where it needed to go and then shift it over? Right. Uh, there, there are some hieroglyphs or pictographs in the Valley of the Nile showing large obelisks being moved on barges. And all researchers acknowledge that barges were used because some of the quarries are across the river from the Great Pyramid, and some are even 400 miles upstream. But uh, in terms of cutting the stone, my understanding is greater than the entire understanding of Egyptology in terms of cutting the stone. And what my understanding is, is that it can't be done using hand tools no matter how many books they put out that sh that show drawings <laughs> of people with the chisels and hammers or the Doriite pounders, it can't be done. Boop, 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 I'm, I'm chiseling, you know, uh, precision. So it, they're high, they're highly precise, and it can't be done. So, so it's uh, just another falsehood that they perpetrate, and that's why that science is in uh, crisis <laughs> now as you were as you were just saying that i just a thing popped in my head um i apologize i can't remember the guy's name but it's his it was his theory that the sphinx actually went under water erosion yes so would that shock yeah so uh, would that yeah, he, uh, a brilliant i've met him and everything of course but uh, he's brilliant uh geologist and the sphinx is made out of rock so it's in his wheelhouse to to examine it and uh, the uh, Sphinx enclosure. And his uh, assessment is that it was uh, built much earlier than Egyptologists say it was built. They say it was built about 4,500 years ago. But based on water erosion and some other factors, he says it's probably pre-last ice age. So it's about 12,000 years ago and wow. and i see no problem with that at all so uh they uh they egyptologists say that the sphinx and the pyramids were built within a generation of one another but 
with the Sphinx yeah. being built so much earlier, that kind of pulls back the construction date of the pyramid. So, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, and that is kind of the one where I was thinking. It's just so with this lock system, like in a way that you're talking about, could some of that water runoff be part of potentially part of what was some of this water erosion that the Sphinx suffered? Because you'd have this massive quantity of water going through this system. And if you had runoff, you could have this sandstone is going to be susceptible to running water. Yeah, uh, limestone, actually. But Limestone, uh, yeah, yeah, sir. Yes, you are correct. Uh, that is a variable that uh, kind of can be a factor for the age of the Sphinx and, and uh, the uh, water erosion. Uh, the Sphinx is lower in elevation than the uh, Great Pyramid, and from the uh, water runoff from the great pyramid that could have could have been a factor but uh but that's that's just a fine point if you will but it does add a variable to the age of the sphinx and the other structures on the giza plateau but uh yeah they use barges and uh moved stones effortlessly in the 1830s the erie canal was built here in the united states it was four and a half feet deep when built but it had a capacity of moving barges that had a 70 ton payloads like corn or lumber, or coal. Same thing. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that, now what's there? It's pouring rain outside. I don't know if anybody could hear that or the thing all of a sudden it just, just started dumping outside the window there. Uh, when they would float, like your theory, when they'd get the blocks in place, how were they at that point? I'm just picturing like they're getting up to the top. I mean, how are they shifting it? Because that's been one yes. of the things. We have a video series that they can watch for free on our website at thepump.org. And it describes the entire process of moving stones. We think that uh, the, the uh, it's right at the top, one of the top things. Uh, they can also download a uh, ISO file and make their own DVD, if you will, if uh, people are smart enough to do that. I'm not. But they use specialized barges to both move and set in place these stones. So imagine, if you will, that they have uh, this pond on the, the Great Pyramid was built level by level, including casing stones. And uh, there was a pond on top of the level being constructed and it was impounded by the casing stones. So that pond is only about four and a half feet deep. People could wade in it. But imagine if you will, two supports that are separated about the, the width of one of the barges and the stones on a barge would overhang the barge just a little bit. So if a, if a, uh, when the barge with a stone went between these two supports, they allowed water to enter the barge. So it would, it would lower in the water and then they would rest. The, the stone on the barge would rest on those two supports. Then they could move the partially submerged barge out of the way, move it to the side of the pond and then siphon the water out of it. And then it would raise back up. So, wow. so they could unload a stone off of a barge 
faster than you can explain how it was done. So, so in theory, what, what do you think happened to these barges? Why they're not in a museum or where did the barges go? You know, if this was the theory on how they were used. Well, it's, we're talking a long time ago and uh, history, the study of anything in history is a jigsaw puzzle with some pieces missing. Um, but those barges were, were up on this pond and I think that they were moved over to the side and then lowered down to a uh, canal that was a right around the Great Pyramid. And that's described in the video series. But, the, but there are no barges uh, as evidence that exist that were used for the Great Pyramid's construction. But all researchers acknowledge that they used barges because the quarries, again, were across the river and upstream 400 miles. So, it, uh, you know, the barges were used, but, but none remain. It's like they made Fabergé eggs just a little over than 100 years ago. But where are the machines that they used to make them? Wow, that's yeah. Nobody that's, knows. You know, they're all they were later lays and other things were later used to make watches or or weapon yeah. wars or whatever. But who knows where those machines are? But the point is, Fabergé eggs were still made to extreme precision. But uh, you know, where's the machines? That's yeah, an April, April that's an commented, and she was just like, "My mind is, you know, like." blown i'm like i'm like yeah i know you just you get these things because you're so used to just growing up you know you the pyramids were built by egypt egyptians using slaves and that was the thing and then you look at <laughs> these things and like your theory and i <clears throat> i want oh i wish i could attribute who said i want to say i was talking with my wife about this too but it was just that the theory is too is that not only were these not slaves these were fellow you know, Egyptians that were one paid very well and were well fed and taken care of. This was like an actual work crew that when they were in the off season, weren't growing crops, they'd come in and they would be working here. So you wouldn't have this slave labor thing was actually most likely not even a thing when they're building these pyramids. Well, the status of the workers is under certainly under scholarly debate. I mean, uh, I've worked for wages, and oftentimes that's called a wage slave, if you will. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the people that, that worked on, let's say, the Hoover Dam, they made 50 cents an hour. But they were highly trained workers. And in the early 30s, 50 cents an hour, all the workers went and bought homes and all of that. So... Uh, they were highly paid. People came from all over the United States to work on that project because it was like prosperity. It was so. Oh, yeah. So what what makes a person a slave is up to scholarly debate. But I'm sure that uh, just like uh, people that worked on submarines in World War II, they were they were paid pretty well and they were fed very well. And were factory workers, if. Uh, here in the 21st century, if you're a factory worker, you're probably overweight because the work <laughs> you do, a lot of it is done by uh, the machines and uh, the apparatus. So so I, I think that they had a good life. You know, there were guys working on barges, you know, repairing them. And there were guys operating water locks. You know, they were just opening and closing the doors. So, yeah, it was a good life uh, working on the <laughs> 
on the Great Pyramid. You just picture that, you know, you got some heavy guy just like, yeah, fine, I'll open the door. Yeah. You know, know, I'm calling my union. I'm calling my union rep. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, so so it's hard to say what their um what their uh citizenship status was, but to me, what they did since I'm kind of technically oriented, what they did was much more important than their citizenship status, but I'm sure, I'm sure it was good. It was an important project that uh, whoever funded it made sure the workers ate well and had a good life. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Cause you just, you know, we teased it, you know, the thing where I said, you know, you've got 10 commandments, you know, Charlton Heston's movie, you know, you're seeing all these people. It's, it's, that was one of the things, like I, I've said it a couple of times now, which is where I really like your theory is, I mean, that theory is, that is such an inefficient way to make, would be to construct something anyway. It's like you're constantly killing your workforce. Mm-hmm. That's like, it, yeah, the horse isn't pulling enough. To, you didn't get the field done today. Pow. You're like, what, what did you do? <laughs> you just you just killed your horse because it didn't plow the field today. Well, yeah, it's not an efficient horse. I'm like, well, yeah, it's really not efficient now. You don't have it. <laughs> yeah, every, everything. Everything about the construction of the Great Pyramid was efficient, and it was a production line efficiency and uh, easy on the back muscles. I mean, the guys that operate the Panama Canal that you mentioned, those guys that operate it, they press buttons and move levers. You know, they they don't lift battleships. Yeah, so those those dog trains just pull them. Yeah. Uh, using water locks is actually one of the only systems that has uh, been demonstrated to, to work, you know, thousands, millions of times. But the big ramp or using a magic wand or that type of stuff or worshiping crystals or, um, you know, contemplating your navel, none of those systems have really worked to, yeah. uh, to demonstrate how heavy payloads were moved. Yeah, because you, ha- you, I've, I've heard some theories like you know they use sound waves, they use these things to levitate, they, you know, because there's, I think the theory probably like the levitation one, the only one where I kind of give some credence to that theory in some way, is we have down here close to us uh, the, the coral castle, and yeah. that's you know in his that you know here you have a single individual that supposedly has moved all these blocks by himself in these locations and you're it's the same thing you don't know how he did it and you know as a single person you're like there's no way you move these blocks yeah uh, i actually haven't been there yet i i'd like to uh but it, it is a modern day mystery to be sure mm-hmm. and uh you know he wrote some cryptic books uh and also uh uh, you know, there's some mis- mystery about what he did, although he moved his whole castle from one location to another, but he used trucks that had uh, diesel motors to go from one location to another. So that's it's another. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to discredit oh, no. anything. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, and that's the one where I just that's the only like example I can think in like modern time where I could say. This is close to where okay, I could I could give this one an audience, but like you said, there's just you're looking at these things. Like your example is the best. You know, you take the wheels off a locomotive, and now you're going to drag that up a hill. Yeah, it's like, you know, please let's see it happen. Because if you right. can do it, yeah. then yeah, the the scientific method is really really uh, valuable because mm-hmm. you can uh, 
you know, set aside ideas that aren't workable. I mean, that's, that's why it has so much value. And, uh, but I know a lot of researchers that say, well, you know, everything's possible or, uh, we can't really dis discount anything. Well, then if, if your research method doesn't help you, you know, uh, get rid of the, the, the chaff, if you will, then uh, you're not getting anywhere. And that's, that's what is the value of the scientific method. That's why all sciences, except for Egyptology, uh, use the scientific method when they can. So, nope. you know. What would you say is their biggest, you know, I mean, because you always see, see this thing, and I always ask this question of like several people, why are they so hesitant to actually follow the facts? It's like they've got this dogma, they've got this thing where it's like, it doesn't matter. You could you could dig up a hole and show something that is completely opposite of what their theory is, and they're like, no, no, well, not well, not, not to dwell on Egyptology, but it it is the only science that has stagnated. Books written by Egyptologists a hundred years ago are virtually the same as they are now, and I created a YouTube video that asks the question: Is Egyptology a pseudoscience? And it certainly meets a lot of criteria. No demonstrations, uh, being uh, intractable in their ideas. They don't work with others. They don't work with stonemasons. They certainly don't work with Robert Schock. He was viscerated by Egyptology for his uh, assessment of the age of the Sphinx and all of that. So, yeah, uh, you go to my YouTube channel to watch that, that video. And it's uh, people say it's compelling. But, uh, yeah, Egyptology is uh, in crisis and uh, will uh, certainly, uh, it's going to either change quite a bit or go the way of phrenology. Not too long ago, they taught that the, the bumps on people's heads correlated with uh, character traits or that type of thing. But that couldn't withstand the rigors of the scientific method and it went away. So it's... Uh, you know, the Egyptology is uh, in crisis right now, and, and we'll see as time goes by. The Piltdown skull was discovered, and all the anthropologists wrote their doctoral thesis on the Piltdown skull, but it wasn't until 40 years later that the Piltdown skull was deemed a hoax with the file marks on it and all of that. Well, what happened was, all the anthropologists that wrote their doctoral thesis, none of those people changed their minds. They just died off. And the next generation of anthropologists never did think the uh, Piltdown skull was valid, but nobody changed their minds. So right now what we're doing is we're waiting for Egyptologists of uh, this generation to die off. And uh, that's, how, that's how science advances. Funeral by funeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I just saw Amber. I don't know if you saw it on the screen there. She put uh, Occam's razor, and that's. I think that's exactly what this is. It's just you have hit it on. It's like instead of trying to do the History Channel, you know, aliens have come down. These were spaceports that you know they built so that the alien ships could come on here. You've come up with something that is, is in fact that this is something that could physically happen people can do it i mean we, like you said, we've talked about that we've talked about the panama canal you can watch it right now on videos you can watch this happen these massive container ships just go up 
and they can float to the next one and they go up and, and all it is is simple water feed. I mean, who hasn't been to an attraction? You know, people have been to Disney. Disneyland, I think, has it. There's a giant, I think it's granite. It's this giant ball that's yeah, sitting that's in water. Weird. Yeah, in yeah. Tomorrowland. I've, yep. I've and you, that in there. Yeah, and so kids go up there all the time and you're pushing it and you're like, that's Stephen's point right there. Mm-hmm. You have this that's giant yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, block of stone sitting in water and you have this little three-year-old kid with his dad sitting there showing it and they're starting to make this thing move and you're like, it's, yeah. I mean, what, it's, it's what more do you need? It, it really is. The Panama Canal was recently... Uh, like within the last 10 years expanded for with bigger water locks mm-hmm. and uh, so what that means is to move our heaviest objects water locks are the 21st century system of choice you know we didn't use big cables or uh, you know anything like that we use water locks in the real world well in the real world in ancient times they used water locks to move their heaviest objects to build the great pyramid yeah, I, mean, I could see that now. And that, and that makes sense how you can have such a vast quantity of these large objects, the obelisks, these blocks, you know, moved in such a, what would be in history wise, such a relatively short amount of time. Yes. The Erie Canal uh, was able to move the weight of the Great Pyramid about 6,000 tons or 6 million, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know now. I'm exhausted. But I think it was 6 million, 6 million tons. It moved that weight in a period of two years. And it also lifted it higher than the height of the Great Pyramid. One end of the Erie Canal is higher than the Great Pyramid compared to the other end, if you, if you get what I'm trying to say. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's fast. Uh, water locks are fast. That's why they put them in. That's why uh, they built the Erie Canal, because it was so fast and uh, a fantastic Method. You got it right. Six point five million tons. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but the Erie Canal moved that in two years, so I think the Great Pyramid was built quite quickly uh, than most most people think. That's yeah, amazing. That, yeah, it's this is just always I, I don't know since growing up. I mean, who hasn't had a miss? You know, a fascination with ancient Egypt. You know, it's mm-hmm. just you got the pyramids. You've got this this weird looking half human, half lion thing that's, you know, sticks, sticks out in yeah. the ground, you know, and just, you look at, you know, I mean, it's not really the basis of your, your book so much, but I mean, what, what are you under the impression that the, the actual purpose of the great pyramid and stuff served? Cause obviously everybody, there's all these different theories. Well, there's a lot of different theories. Some people say it was built uh, to unify Egypt you know, and all of that. And uh, we could unify the United States by building a $50 billion pile of rocks. But uh, the reason why we don't do that is because it would be stupid. Okay. Go back and to the Conservation Corps. Yeah, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work. The Great Pyramid was a, was a beacon for aliens. See, aliens could come all the way to uh, the, the Earth from Orion, but they had to pile rocks on top of each other to find their way back home. So that's that's one idea. And, uh, you know, that it was a tomb for a pharaoh, even though it doesn't look like a tomb. It has a whole bunch of passages and chambers. But it doesn't matter because Egyptologists are tomb robbers. And if you come up with this, come 
encounter this great big pyramid building, they say, oh, well, it must have been a tomb, but they stole all the stuff out of it before we could steal it. <laughs> yeah. Egyptologists explanation of the great pyramid so uh but i think and i'm gonna i'm gonna show you what i think that the great pyramid was for you see this right here no here we go that's my belly okay (laughs) belly and there's a correlation between the great pyramid and the people who built it their bellies okay what they wanted to do is they wanted to eat every day and uh the great pyramid helped them do that they also didn't want to work 12 hours a day. They wanted to have some leisure time. But the Great Pyramid, this big structure that they built at a huge cost, gave them leisure. And they also wanted prosperity. They didn't want poverty. But somehow, the Great Pyramid transformed poverty into prosperity. Isn't that exciting? Anybody like prosperity? Oh, yeah. Everybody does. Everybody likes prosperity. Mm -hmm. Here in the United States, we're inundated by it, but not so much in the third world or other countries. But we love prosperity. So uh, they they also wanted to turn the desert into a garden. So they did that by building the Great Pyramid. And it did all of those things because it was a machine that actually did something. It was infrastructure for the civilization that built it. They weren't trying to tell us they knew pi or anything like that or that it pointed to a star. They weren't trying to do that. That's falsehoods. But they they uh, use this infrastructure, as we use infrastructure, to improve the lives of the people that built it and their children. And it did all of that by the Great Pyramid was a water pump. And that's because I was, I was just going to... You got you beat me to it. I was like I said because that was the thing. It was because it was one of the greatest things is because anybody that's if everybody's following along, okay, we got water, we got water lock system. Now as you're going up, we keep somehow the water has got to get up to the top. Yes, and flow yeah. down. So there has to be something to pump. So we've either got the thousands of people up there. All right, ready, go. Now and they're just yeah, back and forth, yeah, and you're you know, in this giant pump, or this is where you're a water pump, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the water used in water locks weighs a lot more than the payload that you move on barges. So, if they had to manually move the water, it would sure take the fun out of life <laughs> with oh, a big yeah. brigade. But the the Great Pyramid is built with some rather unique features. It has a descending passage that goes down 100 feet below the Great Pyramid to the subterranean chamber. And all of that was built first before the Great Pyramid was assembled. And water that existed at the base of the Great Pyramid went through that subterranean chamber. And with some check valves, and other features that have been destroyed through the eons, that subterranean chamber and the associated cuttings acted like a water pump. And a similar type of water pump in modern times is a uh, hydraulic ram water pump, but it worked a little differently, if you will, I think more Mm -hmm. efficiently. And that pumped water up to supply water for the water locks. That was like a beating heart below the Great Pyramid that supplied the lifeblood for the water locks to make the assembly of the Great Pyramid possible. 
yeah that because that's one of the coolest things i'm trying to here's um i'm going to bring this up here so people can see kind of just get an idea it's like what he was talking about the hydraulic ram pump so here so if anybody has seen like a picture that you know mm -hmm. there's you see the pyramid if anybody thinks about the great pyramid here's that cent what they call the central chamber and here's that you know like you said you can start seeing some of the similarities between the two there are some similarities and and some differences but that that helps people get get an idea of where we're coming from they say well where's the big you know a hydro where's the big uh you know diesel engine or to to run it no the, these pumps work you know without electricity or diesel engines but it, it worked in a very similar fashion that's what modern man has come up with is these hydraulic ram water pumps but uh, the uh, builders of the great pyramid had a very similar method to keep those water locks full and uh, move stones effortlessly so it's uh it's quite ingenious the whole the whole thing it's an integrated system of both the construction of the great pyramid and its ultimate uh, use it it was a big construction project but it had a huge return on investment when it's <clears throat> kind of like like you said where modern technologies they're using the same exact thing look we talked about the panama canal a couple times that is based on rainfall they have a certain, they know how much rainfall is going to get. So that way that, that lake is what the name is failing right now, but the lake is what feeds these locks and they have it set. So it is the whole system is entwined to where there's just enough rainfall to keep these locks going. Right. And, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the Panama canal. Uh, they, uh, these new water locks have uh, at the Panama canal, have what they call uh, side ponds that they're able to reuse some of the water in the same water lock. And oh, nice. those new bigger water locks use less water than the smaller water locks. So it's, uh, it is very ingenious. And they also generate their own electricity for the uh, Panama canal system mm -hmm. and the whole works. And it's, it's a marvelous achievement here in the, it was in the 20th century uh, one of the wonders of the world for the 20th century. So one of my goals in life is to go through the Panama Canal. I haven't done that yet. So uh, <laughs> hopefully it's fun. It's fun. I, I was, we got to do it on a cruise cruise once and it was, I, I'm just not quite tall enough. I almost touched the wall, <laughs> even though they repeatedly told you do not do it. And I'm, I'm reaching, I'm an idiot. I'm just reaching out there. I'm like, come on, I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. My wife's over there. Stop it. I'm like, but I, I want to be able to say I touched the way you're like, yeah, so you can get kicked off the ship. I'm like, he normally uh, doesn't break fine. the rules. So I'm surprised he even tried to reach out and touch it. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Very, very important infrastructure, the Panama Canal. And, uh, you know, we didn't do it because the canals point to stars or anything. We did it to uh, make shipping. Uh, so much cheaper and it, you know that it, uh, it helps it's it's a wonderful thing just like hydroelectric dams you know they all have passages that point to stars but uh, that's not the intent of hydroelectric dams those dams are for infrastructure that uh, uh, you know provide prosperity all the hydroelectric dam does is make electrons go through a wire but that 
is used in a in a multitude of ways, just like the Great Pyramid water pump. All it did was pump water, but that pumped water was used in a in a host of different uh, purposes. They generated electricity. They powered heavy machinery. They uh, probably made uh, compressed air, which was used for a whole host of industrial purposes and irrigation. So uh, the Giza Plateau was more of a science center or industrial park than just like a graveyard. Yeah, that's uh, it's. I, I don't know. It's it's one of those and we keep rolling back, you know, cycling back to the same thing. It's just and I just I keep saying just with your book, that's the part I like. It's just it makes sense when this thing because it's the easiest explanation because it doesn't require this technological feat that everybody's like, Okay, well, it was lost. Well, the only thing that we really you know, for me that's probably still the dilemma is how did they perfectly carve these blocks? Yeah. But the, the first book uh, that I written about the Great Pyramid is Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. And the technology to cut stone is lost. And uh, one way to know that it's lost is no one can demonstrate it using any method that uh, the original builders probably had, especially with the chisels and the, and the hammers. You know, uh, Egyptology could get all of us alternative researchers to shut our mouths if they could just uh, make a casing stone like those that yep. covered the Great Pyramid. Just make one of them. And uh, but they refuse to engage in the scientific method. And that has led to a lot of falsehoods uh, regarding uh, the Great Pyramid. So, uh I, I, yeah, I'm, the yeah. first one, I'm the first one to say, I don't know how the stones were cut, but I'm also the first one to say that every Egyptologist is wrong when they say it was done using hand tools. Have yeah, because... Since, since, since they used the canal or whatever, the water, you know, the water gate, do you think it could have been cut by water? I mean, this new technology that we have where we cut stuff with water, um, maybe, not, maybe it's not so new. You know, we can't find the barges. Maybe they could have cut it with water. Water cuts precisely. So do you think that could be a possible theory on how they cut I it actually precisely? do. I do. I think that that, that could be a, a very definite possibility uh, that they use like a water jet, if you will. There's some <laughs> sonic uh, methods to cut stone that Christopher Dunn talks about. Much of that, though, is to cut holes as opposed to flat surfaces that are five feet by seven feet, but they're within one one fiftieth of an inch in in uh, in precision, which is less than your thumbnail. So, uh, uh, but uh, I also know that uh, Egyptology, all, all Egyptologists are wrong about uh, the. Uh, I got to you know about if they can't even get one casing stone right. What, what else are they wrong about? And I, I think a whole host of things, including the sequence of pyramid construction, certainly the purpose of the Great Pyramid, and uh, a whole host of other things. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange world. We're, they, yeah. they, they used to teach phrenology in college, but towards the end of that process people were uh saying hey you know i'm not i don't believe in that even though they teach it in college well that's where we're at with uh 
Egyptology is uh, a lot of people don't believe what they say anymore. It was like the, the stone cutting. I, I link it up there with some of the, the really lost arts. Like one of the ones is the mid medieval, just the dark ages, the leaded, the leaded glass. They don't know how to make that recreate that leaded glass. that's in some of these churches. So if those windows are ever destroyed, it's, you know, that is a lost thing that cannot be replaced because nobody knows how to they, do it. Yeah. They don't, they lost that secret. They can't figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there, there were no primitive cultures. All, all ancient cultures had some very high technology. Uh, ancient Egypt had birth control. They had C-sections. They had the Baghdad battery. They had uh, lights that a lot of people think some of those tunnels didn't have any soot way down deep, but they, they were painted. And uh, some people say they had some method to light the tunnels. South America, they had uh, a lot of our medicines are derived from plants from South America. Uh, aspirin is, is one and, and others. They did a brain, lots of brain surgery in South America. Terrapanning, where you can still see the whole the holes in the skulls, and that uh, they have survived the brain surgery because it started to remodel and uh, just yeah. So uh, so there there are no primitive uh, civilizations, and uh, the only thing primitive is Egyptology's understanding <laughs> of how yeah, yeah. Uh, the Great Pyramid was built. <laughs> well, I saw, I saw that documentary, The Mummy. I mean, it showed used mirrors. That's how you see down those tunnels. Yeah, they. I I, I hear you. They they sh they. When you say showed it, it was probably either a computer generated animation. Oh yeah, it was it was the movie the mummy. That's why I always awesome. Oh, 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 the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I always I always refer to that as the documentary that you know it's like in the documentary of the Matrix. Yeah, the documentary of the mummy. You know, they yeah. all you had to do was just simply move this mirror, and it illuminated the entire area, and you're like, oh, I can see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In real, in real world, that's that's not uh, that's not viable. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, but the Great Pyramid was built in the real world, and they they built it to to actually have a huge return on investment, like a hydroelectric dam or a electrical power grid or a highway system, and you you know huge return on investment for all of those things. The large agriculture and everything. Yeah, the largest structure in the Valley of the Nile is not the Great Pyramid; it's the Aswan Dam, and that Aswan Dam was a huge expense, but it had a huge and still does return on investment with uh, the generation of electricity. A lot of that electricity is used to uh, to uh, power their uh, extensive irrigation system. So instead of relying on the yearly inundation the people uh, spend all this money so they can uh, increase the uh, irrigated farmland and irrigate it year-round instead of once a year so uh, Egypt has always needed massive water pumping systems in modern times and in ancient times yeah and th that wouldn't make sense because even if you go with the Bible you know where it talks about Joseph working with the Pharaoh to make the grain storage you know, it makes sense. Like if this was if this was still there, they would still be using it. So this would be an amazing agricultural boom because now you have this water pump pumping water that you could easily irrigate this area that, like I said, you couldn't do a bucket brigade. 
couldn't do something like it. It would just, this would be flowing for agriculture, which would be an amazing thing. That's true. Um, that's why, that's why we use machines, the windmills up there in uh, Holland and all of that. They, uh, a lot of those windmills are five horsepower, the horsepower of a, of a human. And, and that's all the power they put out. Uh, excuse me. Five horsepower is what a lawnmower puts out is five horsepower, but they built these great big windmills. These, you know, mm -hmm. years ago, five horsepower, but uh, one man can put out about one tenth of a horsepower working. Okay. So five horsepower is 50 men. So each windmill can do the work of 50 men without, without paying them, feeding them, housing them. So those windmills were a, an amazing improvement. So, uh, so that's why, that's why we use machines, you know, and, uh, for the, uh, advantage that they provide. And the great pyramid is a machine that, uh, if, if they just used it for irrigation, although there were other uses, uh, it would have made Egypt the breadbasket of the world, which it was. And uh, food, if you're the leader of a country and you have excess food, you have wealth that can be uh, traded or whatever instead of the next door nation that's having, uh, you know, some sort of poverty or famine. And uh, that's why uh, they, they went from Israel, according to the Bible, over to Egypt is because there was a famine in the land. And they went over to Egypt to get some food, so all the Jews wouldn't um, wouldn't die off, starve to death. So, so it's it's all interesting. It all kind of ties in and everything yeah. like that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, no, it's like played all of this stuff. Oh yeah, like one of the things I'm I'm really interested in too. Um, April was commenting. You know, she said, "How did they do C sections back there? You know, without killing it." I'm like. I'm actually really interested in that now too, where that's something like I want to, I want to look into and see, cause that is, that is fascinating how they could do those procedures. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, look it up. They, they did a whole host of things um, that uh, was amazing. All, all, all ancient civilizations. Um, uh, when you nap um, a arrowhead out of obsidian, uh, <laughs> the arrowhead is sharper than a scalpel used by a, a surgeon. In fact, surgery now often uses napped uh, obsidian for their scalpels. So is that a 21st century technology or did ancient man have knives sharper than any of the knives in our pockets? And, uh, so, so it's, it's an amazing world. I was just at Yellowstone this summer and they had a quarry that had some high quality obsidian that they have determined was, um, was quarried for centuries. And they traded that obsidian all the way to the Great Lakes and, and all over the place. So, so it's, uh, you know, the American Indians, they weren't just, digging roots or whatever that you know it's a whole commerce and uh high high civilization and I mean, uh, development of papyrus and everything i mean it's just they they changed a lot of things and that's but you know you kind of you kind of hit on it through your book and it's kind of recurring theme now that with some of the guests that we've had and i really like this is just 
how we're showing that I've, you don't have this modern thing that people have just, they kind of discovered that there was most likely pre-civilizations. This wasn't some alien ship that flew along and just dropped down and here, let me show you how to do this. This was a civilization that left behind some information. And then you have other people that have discovered that and they were able to build, you know, use that and build upon it and create some of these things, which are amazing because like we said, this in the beginning, this looks like this is something that they continued on that they may not have actually been the ones that originally were the ones that create, created this. Right. Uh, the Ferroic uh, dynasty uh, Egypt, that uh, Egyptologists study, uh, they, the pyramids may have pre-existed that civilization. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm very open to that. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, I, I hate to put it this way, it doesn't take a lot to develop some highly sophisticated technology. Uh, the guy that figured out penicillin, he saw uh, bread mold. Uh, there, there was some this penicillin on bread mold, and it, uh, it was uh, penicillin. But he figured it out pretty much in one day. You know, we looked at it and, and kind of determined what it was, and we benefited from that. Nikola Tesla figured out alternating current which is actually quite uh, sophisticated. He figured it out in one day. And, uh, you know, about the transformers and tr uh, moving electricity in long distances, which was impossible with direct current at the time. And he figured that out in one day. So that's all it took was people like, uh, like those people or Victor Schrauberger, who uh, is attributed to designing the Foo Fighter engine in Nazi Germany and doing a whole host of other things and pe people like that, just a few of those people, a few geniuses in a civilization with a wise leader. And, uh, they uh, built uh, this infrastructure to improve their lives. And that's, that's what I think what happened a long time ago, our distant ancestors, people like us humans built the great pyramid. And if you say aliens did it, you're also saying that uh, that people weren't smart enough to do it, but uh, I don't think that's the case. So I'm not I'm not one of them alien alien guys. I know people that study the Great Pyramid. You ask them how it was built, their answer is in two words or well, three: aliens did it, and then they go on to something else. But uh, yeah, you know, if if you can't figure out how stones can move from point A to point B, then uh, your research is lacking. Yeah, because there's been some great discoveries. I mean, like, I'm really looking forward to as they discover more things like Gobekli Tepe. Yes. That, just, that is just an amazing, because this is, this discovery is showing that, and that's one of the ones we talked earlier, too, about how Egyptologists, they seem to just refuse to at, update as information comes in. Here you have something that is, that is predating by almost 6,000 years prior, and you're like, right here this we're showing some you know this pretty thing well no it didn't you know it wasn't until here well what happened in this six thousand years they didn't just stop and then mm -hmm. just suddenly decide to okay hey let's do it again so uh, you're correct yeah uh, egyptology is certainly uh resistant to any type of change or improvement if you will and that's that is uh that's a problem egyptology <clears throat> is the biggest hindrance to understanding ancient Egypt. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it's going, it's, 
how can I say this? It's it's going to be modified or it will uh, be in the ash bin of rejected ideas. But yeah, uh, the, uh, there's a lot of things, uh, especially in the Middle East, a lot of uh, unusual artifacts that are that are not easily explained by just an, an agrarian, uh, simple civilization. And it was kind of the, the same thing too, it, kind of modern time, like the the Egyptian artifacts that are found in the Amazon in South America. So obviously this wasn't just an agrarian society that, that liked to chisel rocks and stack them in just in these formations. This, we have this potentially worldwide seafaring population that, which would make sense if you know how to move a 70 ton block on a barge, pretty sure you can build a, a boat that's going to sail across the ocean. Oh, I think, I think way back that there was uh I don't want to say international uh, because it's not nations, but uh, worldwide trade, uh, a lot of things, zinc and copper. Uh, there's a lot more zinc and copper than the old world had access to. And up, up by the Great Lakes, there is some exceptional copper deposits. That, copper. Uh, yes. And they think that that copper was mined and uh, traded uh, worldwide. Many, 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 many years ago, before conventional um, archaeologists say it was. So it's uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating to consider that uh, how how smart ancient people are, and it's the the honor and duty of modern day researchers to understand what what our our ancestors did. Uh, in the real world and what, what really happened. So uh, it's, a, it's a puzzle. Ancient history is a puzzle with some pieces missing, but uh, we are, we're in a revolution of ideas. And I think that a, a, a more precise understanding of our, of our ancient uh, relatives is coming to light with Gobi Tempe and all these other, all these other things, you know, and yeah, that's so, I mean, everybody, it's like, if you want more information, you know, from that Steve, like what we were talking about, you know, you need to go to, you've got his, his site, the pump.org. Um, I just ha still have it on the videos here, but you got, um, you, you can watch those videos where, which as he was talking, I was looking at them and they just, they go just point by point, like how the theory is behind this. Go here, get information from him. I had it, like I said, get involved video series, you know, the podcast he's been on, contact him. You can also go to amazon.com and purchase these books and read them for yourself. And it, fantastic book, by the way, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I just hope people will find out about the research before they pass judgment and uh, see what it's about. And the most revolutionary thing you can suggest to somebody is to read a book you know, and uh, that's that's what I suggest to people. So uh, people that uh, don't have a vested interest in Egyptology uh, really find the research compelling. You know, uh, truck truck drivers, auto mechanics, people that work in shipyards, people that actually have to do something in the real world, people that understand mm -hmm. what it takes to move heavy payloads. Those are the people that uh, really find the research uh, compelling 
and um, as opposed to Egyptologists. Yeah, that, that, that's and one of those things that I go through here. I, I kind of like that too. It's it's like if you go into something closed minded, you miss out on options. Because I lo- I lo- always kind of said this thing: if you go into something closed minded, it's because you probably haven't taken the time to actually to actually study. It's more of an indoctrination than it is an actual education. Because it's one of those: if you are unwilling to see evidence as it comes, like you you've mentioned it a couple times, scientific method. If you truly follow this and you truly believe this. You have to insert new information as it comes, or else you have not. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're discounting information. That's true. Um, for just to say it again, Egyptology is sort of de-evolved into a mystery religion with their priests yeah. that uh, you know repeat the same stories generation after generation. And uh, but uh, we will uh, we're in the revolution of ideas, political ideas, social ideas, environmental ideas and and all of that. And all of those require new answers, not to new questions, not not just the same old uh, status quo. So that's, uh, you know, it's a battle to get uh, new ideas out there and shows like this really make a difference. So well, I appreciate I, that. I, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate you coming on because that was one. I was really looking forward to this too. And I know Chris, Chris spent a lot of time last night, you know, prepping, getting ready, getting ready for this. And so you know, he was telling me, and I'm like, Dad, and I know it's. I'm really looking forward to have having him on to discuss these things because this is something that a lot of people, until, you know, have yeah. not heard this theory. It, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's it's new to most. But uh, the, wor- the word's getting out there, you know, people are going to the YouTube channel and that type of thing. And you guys heard about it. So uh, it, it takes a while to get to get a new idea out there. Uh, the guy, guy named uh, Alfred Wagner was a uh, weatherman, if you will. And he came up with this idea of continental drift, uh, but totally rejected by geologists. Again, it took about 40 years, and they came up with plate tectonics, which is virtually the same thing. Same, so, same thing, uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it uh, it takes a while to get an you know an idea out there, and uh, the yep. hardest thing the hardest thing you can ask anyone to do is to um, reject what you already think is true, and replace it with a newer uh, truth. You know, computer hard drives, it's easy to replace information on them. But the human mind, it's very difficult. So younger people uh, find this research very compelling, but a lot of older, stodgy people uh, don't. So uh, I hope people ha- are young at heart when they uh, research our uh, the books and DVD documentaries. Yeah, that's... So yeah, everybody, please go to his site, you know, the pump.org, check out more information, go to Amazon, things that I mean, right now it looks like they're each, both of those books are listed, you know, for $8.99 for Kindle. So, I mean, you can have it down tonight. And then when you're tucking yourself into bed, you can be reading this book. True. Uh, I, I actually like Kindle uh, over uh, regular books because when I'm in bed sleeping, a regular book will fall on my face, you know, when I yeah. fall asleep. But a Kindle yeah, we, doesn't doesn't hurt. So I know. Oh my god! I, just, I didn't get a chance to mention that because that was one of the things I talked about. Where I'm kind of starting to like these things, like the paperbacks, 
is because I really love hardbacks. But man, I'm telling you, when you fall asleep and all of a sudden that spine from the hardback just pow, you're like, yeah. what? Oh, you know, yeah. you're, looking over, you're looking over your wife like, what did you do? What? What did I do? You're like, no, it was the book. <laughs> also, also on the Kindle, the the uh, if you use a Kindle app, the pictures are in color. But in the soft color, they're grayscale. So, oh, there, that's a, there, that. that's, yeah, just so, something. Yeah, yeah. Austin, well, likes, Austin likes pictures, so make sure you get it in Kindle. Oh yeah, we got it. Does it, there's a lot of pictures in the books, a lot of footnotes, and then both documentaries have a lot of computer generated uh, animations that depict all of this stuff that we're talking about. It's very visual. And the entire process of how the water pump operated is very visual. Uh, it's like trying to describe how a V8 engine works. You know, a picture or a animation goes goes a long way, and that's what the documentaries are filled with. Is quite a, quite a few animations. Yeah, and that's that definitely helps because there's a lot of people that you know you want the visual. You know, because it's, it's a lot of cerebral. Like when you hit here, like we talked about the ram pump. You know, people are like what. The ring, you know, and then when you see the picture, you're like, oh yeah, I can't. You can kind of see the two side by side and see the juxtaposition. And you're like, oh yeah, I do see the similarities between those two. There, there yeah. are some and uh, some some uh, some differences, but uh, it's a good way for people to get a handle on it uh, quickly uh, of that type of thing. Most people, when you talk about a pump, they think about an impeller or an electric motor, but there's a whole host of different types of pumps. Uh, if I may, uh, mm -hmm. there's a, uh, there's a, what they call the Humphrey pump in, uh, Australia and they, they use fuel that they ignite, but it, it makes a vacuum. This Humphrey pump has no piston or cylinder or anything. It just has an enclosed structure that they cr create a vacuum with, uh, combustion and then that draws water up into this airtight chamber. And we haven't talked about the Great Pyramid water pumps operation too much, but that pump has a similarity between, yes, the Humphrey pump. Yeah. It's a, it's a tiny picture. I apologize. You, you know, yeah. For anybody that's hard, you know, has trouble seeing, I, I apologize for Austin getting me this small picture. They can zoom in with right. their phone or whatever device they're on. <laughs> yeah, there's no, uh, there's a few automatic valves and there's some timing mechanisms for the uh, combustion and and that, but it's a it's a type of pump that's absolutely foreign to most people, and I'd like to go to see the uh, Humphrey pump if I ever get a chance to, you know, travel restrictions the way they are. But uh, what I'm saying is, if if you look at that, it doesn't look like a water pump, just like the hydraulic ram doesn't yeah. look like a water pump. And and uh, we were going to do a tour to Egypt. I was going to lead a tour, but the coronavirus got us in travel restrictions. We were doing that in February. So if someone out there needs a tour leader in the future, uh, they can contact me. Uh, the tour that I was going to lead uh, was canceled but the uh, itinerary is still on our website. So keep that in mind. Okay. That, that's, that was one of the things, you know, go to the pump.org, you know, keep up on that. So as one of these times we're going to get, we're going to get rid of these restrictions and we're going to actually be able to get back to some semblance of normality of being able to do what we, we would like to do like these tours. And so, but everybody, Steve, 
Stephen, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. You know, everybody, please go check out his book. Go check out the site. Send him some support. You know, thank him for coming on. And, you know, blessings to you, man. Stay. I said, hope everything goes there. Don't, you know, hopefully it doesn't rain too much more over there on the coast. Oh, yeah. I'm on the Oregon coast with lots of rain. So, but that's okay. And I sure, again, appreciate uh, your kindness and open-mindedness letting me discuss this unusual explanation oh, of the pyramid. Oh, much, thank you know, for, thank, absolutely. Thank you for breaking it down to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, well, hey, have a great night, sir. And we, like I said, we will definitely, as new information comes up, you know, please don't let us know as you find, as you find your thing. Cause I, I'd love to get updates as we go. And then if something comes up, you know, bring you on at a later, later time too. get an update. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have, have a great night. All right, everybody, this episode is brought to you by Nanny Cakes. Go to Nanny Cakes 407 on Facebook or give her a call at 407-923-2898. And in Central Florida area, mention you heard it back here. She's going to save you 15% off your cake, which is a pretty impressive savings. Threebeardspodcast.com is our site. Go there, patreon.com forward slash threebeardspodcast. If you liked that video we showed there in the beginning, that new one, that's brought on by support from not only Nanny Cakes and uh, yeah, others, but also you know, by if you become Patreon, then it really helps. I mean, we're we've got to update it. We got to get a level like you know, put another level. But just yeah, anything thrown our way is going to help us come up with these things. Um, Austin got some free samples from J and J Beard Company um, for some beard oil. They're also rebroadcasting our show on Thursdays on their internet radio station, Patriot radio, uh, go download the Zeno radio app. So that way you can listen to it there afterwards. So everybody checks that like favorite share, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, hit, hit Austin up with a DM. Maybe you can get a personalized picture signed. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why me? Cause it's fun. Oh my God. <laughs> Yes. So everybody, thanks for watching. Appreciate it. Steve Myers again, you know, everybody, please check him out. Really appreciate him coming on April. Thank you much for sharing it with it. That means the world to us. It seems like such a simple thing for you guys, but it does. It means the absolute word world to us for you to share us off. Cause that, that really, that means that we did something right that you, you actually are willing to admit that you saw us. So everybody, thank you. Have a great night. We'll see you next week with some more great, great shows. What's it? Everybody, good night.